can we go to Romans 4 again tonight, please? Romans chapter 4. Good to see everybody. Romans 4 and also Isaiah chapter 51. Just for point of reference, Isaiah 51. Right within Deutero-Isaiah. I have some very large irons in the fire developing in this study. It takes it's quite a time to develop it, but it's going to be an extraordinary chapter in Romans coming up. And a, a new motif, a new theme. I'm not going to give you the title of it yet, so keep you on pins and needles. Let's take a few moments Silent preparation tonight is our only midweek service. There will be none tomorrow night. Then schedule as usual. Father, we pray tonight that as you magnified Joshua before all the people in Joshua 4.14, that you will magnify the greater Joshua, the greater Yehoshua, our Lord Jesus, in our sight tonight. We ask this in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 4 has been, for me, the largest challenge in the study of the book of Romans so far. And the reason is, it's... A strong tradition has developed to make us want to see a justification by personal faith in the example of Abraham, and that's not really what the Holy Spirit's teaching here. And so it's become a challenge, but it also is a great blessing to recognize that this whole chapter fits into a phenomenal continuity of a theme of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and how that applies in our everyday living. We're going to consider tonight faith as a dynamic state, a dynamic state, not a static state, and also consider looking to and through our father Abraham. The Holy Spirit leads us to look to some of the elders, for example, in Hebrews 11, who obtained a good report. And that's what Abraham gets. He gets a good report. And the good report is God approves of his livingness. His livingness is a faithfulness. It's evoked by the promise. It's a confident hope that is brought about by the promise of God. And it's a confident hopefulness and implicit trust in God's promise that motivates his entire being, thinking, doing, choosing, deliberating, acting. And so faith is far more than we would assume it to be. We'll consider it tonight then as a dynamic state. And again, the subject looking to and through our father Abraham. We look to him, but we look through him to the author and perfecter of faith, even Jesus our Lord. We look to him, but we look beyond him to Jesus Christ. Now, the order of Abraham's experience of God in faith is reflected in Romans eleven twenty-five and 26. God approved of his livingness, while he was uncircumcised first and as Romans 11:25 says first all the gentiles the pleroma the totality of the gentiles comes in to the saving grace of God and then second part of his experience was his faithfulness in a state of circumcision which relates to the second half of God's overall salvific program, all Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty five and 26. So again, the order of Abraham's experience of God in faith 
is reflected in Romans 11, 25, and 26. The nations come in, reflecting Abraham's uncircumcised state where he was approved. And then all Israel will be saved, reflecting Abraham's state as circumcised and still approved, not because of his circumcision, because of his faithful livingness. Saved, says Romans 11.26, because the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe, and all who believe is all those who are embodied in Messiah's faithfulness. All who are embodied in Christ's faithfulness are both the pleroma or the totality of the Gentiles and all of Israel in all of its times. In other words, all of humankind. Romans 4, and some of this is going to be repetitive. I want to go over it and over again because it's been a couple of years to develop this doctrine where I hide away in my study. And that's why sometimes very few people see me. <laughs> I'm hiding away in the study. Romans 4 is not a proof of justification by faith. That is a forensic or judicial imputation of righteousness as God's response to human believing. Romans 4 is not a proof of justification by faith using Abraham as a paradigm. But one, it's a proof of Abraham's faith or a proof that Abraham's faith without circumcision was considered by God to be rectitude or God-approved livingness as his faithfulness before and after circumcision was considered to be rectitude or God-approved livingness in God's eyes. And so, secondly, Romans 4 serves as a kind of lead-in, a lead-in to the spiritual life of Christians in the present age. And whose boastful confidence must be in Christ Jesus. As Philippians 3.3 teaches it. A people who serve in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Romans 7, 6, and a people who have no confidence whatsoever in the flesh, including physical circumcision. Thirdly, Romans 4 is a declaration that faith is that which is the essential element of Christian living. And it is that alone which pleases God as Hebrews 11, 6, 5 teaches, 11, 5 and 6, and apart from which is sin. Apart from faith, sin rules the person's life, Romans 14, 23. Now, to clarify this, in Hebrews eleven six, we have the words he or she, let's use he just for purpose of clarity and simplicity, he that comes to God, there in Hebrews eleven six is not referring to coming to God for salvation, but coming to God and to his throne of grace, as Hebrews four sixteen has already said, having already received salvation, coming to God is not a coming to God for salvation, but a coming to God or to his throne of grace having received salvation. It is absurd to think that someone has to believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him in order to come to him for salvation. Think of the absurdity of it. Or for justification. Again, it is absurd to think that someone has to believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him in order to come to him for salvation or for justification. Coming to God, having believed that he is and that he rewards those who industriously seek him because of their abject need is the privilege of our priesthood under our great high priest. 
Now that Abraham's faith, or we could call it implicit trustful hope, faith in this context is trustful hope in the effective promise of God. It's a dynamic state. And that's why Paul said in another place, we walk by faith. It's a dynamic, ongoing state. That Abraham's faith, or his implicit trustful hope, followed by constant fidelity, that that was counted as righteousness, is not saying that Abraham was justified by his faith but that his trust in God evoked by the promise and the Holy Spirit was considered to be rectitude in God's eyes. Christian integrity, we could call it. God-approved livingness. Long before the statement was made in Genesis 15, 6, God appeared to Abram even before he had the name Abraham, Abram. God appeared to Abram and called him away from his home in the Ur of the Chaldees, and Abram went, called and obedient already, way before Genesis fifteen six. This was in Genesis eleven thirty two to twelve four. Even before he was called Abraham, by God breathing an extra syllable into his name. Abraham was called. He heard Yahweh speak and command him to leave the Ur of the Chaldees, the home of his father, Terah, who was a manufacturer of idols. And so I wanted you to look briefly to Isaiah 51 because this is something that's characteristic of Jewish teaching and of the prophets, really. It's important that Genesis 11 through 22 exists and even beyond as an exegesis of Abraham. He's a very key figure in Israel's history. I translated Isaiah 51 from the Greek text. It says, listen to me, Yahweh is speaking, you who pursue the right. The right here is rectitude. Again, those who pursue righteousness or rectitude. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were dug. Now, this is poetic. Isaiah is a poetic prophet. And so the rock from which they were cut is Abraham. The quarry from which they were dug is Sarah. And that's why these two correspond in verse 2. Look to Abraham, your father. And that's where we have Romans 4 come in. And Sarah, who gave birth to you with pain. When I called him, he was only one. And blessed him. And loved him. And multiplied him. Means in the Hebrew text, made him many. That is... This is another way of saying, in his seed, all the nations would be blessed. This is another way of talking about the universal encompassing of all humanity. Now, as many as God called, those he also justified. He called Abraham, called Abram from the Ur of the Chaldees. Get up and get out of your father's house. And... Abraham heard and believed. Abraham heard and obeyed. As many as he called, those he also justified. Romans 8.30, as many as he justified, those he also glorified. It says nothing about faith there in that golden chain of divine actions. As many as God foreknew, and predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, those he also called, those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. It's a chain of unbroken links in Romans 8.30. 
Faith is not part of it. Abraham was called and justified, and his life brought glory to God. We're going to learn that later on in Romans 4.21. Who is pleased, his, his life brought glory to God, who is pleased by nothing but a faith that works by love. And that is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith, by definition, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. God approves of those who hold this conviction of unseen things revealed by his word and who hold on to the hope and the assurance of things hoped for. So after Abraham was called and justified, his life of faith in which he implicitly trusted God was considered rectitude. That's another word for righteousness. There are many nuances for the word righteousness. We could also say integrity, if you want, by God. Both before and after he was physically circumcised. This faith is a hopeful, confident faithfulness in God that God considers to be rectitude. He's pleased with this way of livingness, this way of being, thinking, and intending, this way of reflecting, judging, deciding, choosing, acting. It's a dynamic state. It becomes revealed later on in Scripture, especially in Galatians 5, 6, that this faith works by love. And that's where I'm moving very carefully and very methodically right now. It is hopeful, confident faithfulness in God that God himself considers to be rectitude, not observance of the Torah's strictures or what we call the letter of the law. The letter of the law doesn't mean just reading the law and trying to do it. The letter of the law is a name for the Torah as having been co-opted by sin. And the law came 400 years after Abraham and sin co-opted law. So as many as God called, those he also justified in Romans 8.30. God called Abraham at the Ur of the Chaldees, way back in Genesis 11. So Genesis 15:6 is not talking about God justifying Abraham on the occasion of Abraham's believing, because as many as he called, he justified. He doesn't say as many as he called, he justifies if they believe. As many as he calls, he justifies. As many as he justifies. He glorifies. Our personal faith has nothing to do with our justification. Only Jesus Christ's faithfulness. But it's been for the purpose of conforming us into the image of his son that we have been predestined, called, justified, glorified. All of humanity is destined to be conformed into the image of God, which is Christ. Abraham was an example of those, for example, in Thessalonica, who turned from idols to serve the living God. Abram was in a town called Ur, of the Chaldees. His father was a famous and very wealthy idol manufacturer. Abraham was called by God, and when he responded to God, he turned from idols to serve the living God. Like Paul said to the Thessalonians, 
at the beginning of First Thessalonians, he said, you turn from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. At the end of that epistle, Paul assures them, God who called you is faithful to sanctify you spirit, soul, and body. And then he closes by saying, faithful is he who called you. Meaning as he called Abraham, who also will do it. Faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. Sanctify you wholly and completely. Now again, to reach out to another passage. And I can't help doing this when I study Romans because my whole beginning of reading the Bible was following cross-references. And so I can't help doing that. And I think it's the way the Spirit directs me as personally as a teacher. The elders, as they're called, presbyteroi in Hebrews 11, men and women both. The elders in Hebrews 11, from Abel to the martyrs under Antiochus IV Epiphanes, in the time of the Maccabees, were said to have obtained a good report. It does not say their faith justified them for salvation. It says by faith they obtained a good report. Abraham obtained a good report from God. God says, here's a report card, Abraham. I'm pleased. I consider your faithfulness and your confident fidelity that's been evoked by my promise and sustained by my spirit, I consider that to be approved. He obtained a good report. Doesn't say he obtained justification. He obtained a good report. God considered his faithfulness to be rectitude. Same with all of the elders in Hebrews 11, from Abel to the martyrs under Antiochus Epiphanes. They obtained a good report, not because their faith justified them, but because through faith, a dynamic state in which they lived, which God ignited and kept the flame, through faith they did such and such and received such and such. Their faith received God's approval like Abraham's did. So from a consideration of Abraham, let's look to Abraham, look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry, the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you were hewn. From a consideration of Abraham, Paul goes further back. He looks through Abraham, first of all, backwards to Adam. He does that in Romans 5. Adam as a single representative of all humankind. Abraham is also a single representative of all humankind in a different way. But from a consideration, looking to Abraham, Paul goes further back, looking through Abraham, back to Adam as a single representative of all humankind. And then he looks through Abraham forward to Christ as the final Adam who, like Adam, bears the destiny of all humankind. But unlike Adam, Jesus bears a destiny unto eternal life for all the human race. He leads, therefore, the writer to the Hebrews leads his readers, as Paul leads the readers of Romans both then and now, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, leads them to look away from Abraham or beyond Abraham and Sarah and Samson and Deborah and Moses and David and all the others and to look away, afhorao, unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That is, whose faithfulness justifies all. The spirit of truth leads us to look to Abraham and then through him 
to Jesus. Now, surprise, exegesis. We will give you the translation, what I have so far, Romans 4.1. The teacher says, well then, if like you say in Romans 3.31, the Torah stands tall as a testimony of Messiah's fidelity, then what shall we say about what Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has obtained? For since Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, he says in verse 2. But Paul replies, but this isn't how God sees it. But what does the scripture say? Abraham faithfully trusted God, and God considered this fidelity, or this confident, hopeful trust, we could call it, as rectitude. That's also known as God-approved livingness. Now, to the one who works, his pay is not calculated according to the principle of grace, but of obligation. But to the one who is not working, but trusting in the one who rectifies much better than justifies, because in Exodus 23, 7, the Lord says, you do not justify the wicked. Because justify there has the sense of acquitting or just passing over or just condoning the wicked. The word justify has the sense of rectify. God rectifies the ungodly. And that means he makes them right. He doesn't just give them a legal righteousness so that their righteousness is nothing more than a legal fiction. So they spend the rest of their life sinning, of course, and then acknowledging their sin, admitting their sin, confessing their sin. Their life is made up of sinning and confessing and sinning and confessing and sinning and confessing. God rectifies the ungodly. We're going to hit something very strongly soon in Luke chapter 5 in this regard, and it has phenomenal power. The Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, and they went to Jesus' disciples, and they said, why do you habitually eat and drink with sinners, hamartoli, and tax collectors. And Jesus overheard it, and he answered for his disciples. He answered their complaining question. He said, Jesus said to them in Luke 5.31, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to a change or a transformative liberation is what he's talking about there. And he says, those who are well, who are healthy, have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. He likens, in fact, equates sinfulness as sickness. It requires healing. Now, here's the, here's the hint of where we're going in the phenomenally large brand that's in the fire right now. The huge question that we asked, and it was the foundational question at the outset of Rev the Book. I asked it, and so I say we asked it. Is God's justice punitive and retributive? Or is it restorative and transformative? I took four years to answer it. Not like some of the accusers that are saying, you just came up with this. We took four years to answer it. We came up with a very forceful affirmative that it is restorative and transformative. Now, if God's justice, that's because... God's love isn't founded in his justice. Rather, God's justice is founded in his love. But here's the question now. If God's justice is not only only restorative and transformative, it's life-giving. The final judgment will be a life-giving judgment to all of humankind. And it'll be an iteration of... 
the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for all human beings. We have to ask the question then, is the death of Jesus Christ, or what we call the cross of Jesus Christ then, is that a, and here's the famous word, penal for the word penalty. Is Jesus Christ's death, his suffering of the penalty for sin, Or is Jesus Christ's death the means that the great physician uses to heal the sickness of sin, the incurable, otherwise incurable sickness of sin? And that's the big question that's coming up now. The first one had to do with the universal horizon. Now we're dealing with the center of the cross. Did Christ die to save us from God because God is wrathful and vindictive? Or is Christ just like his father and was his death intended to be for us to restore us from our enslavement to sin and forgive us for our complicity with sin? If Jesus Christ's death on the cross was penal substitution, he paid a penalty that God was going to mete out to us because he was really mad. Then we have to go back and say, well, God is a retributive God. God is a punitive God, and his justice is punitive and retributive. And we see the cross through the lens of a vindictive God. So Jesus has actually come here to save us from God, who's very angry and vindictive and retributive. This will change our whole view of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what's coming up because it's very, it's at the heart of Romans. What does it mean that God did not spare his only son, but freely gave him up for us all? Does it mean that he was given over to suffer a penalty to be punished for us? And just who was angry at him and who was wrathful at him? But the people who said crucify him. That's just a hint of things to come. I have the answers, and it comes under the title of something that it's another Latin title that's coming up. So then, we look away from all else to Jesus and to Christ and him crucified. Romans chapter 4, we're continuing in, we just finished Five, to the one who's not working, but trusting in the one who justifies. Notice what it says. It doesn't say trusts in that one to be justified. It says trusts in the one who justifies the ungodly. He heals the sick that he calls to himself. The sick don't come to him. He calls them. He's the doctor, but instead of going to the doctor, he calls the sick to himself. That's just like when he went to Zacchaeus, the rich man. The rich man didn't invite him into his house. Jesus invited himself into the rich man's house. And he said, today salvation's come to this house. And he must have laughed heartily at Zacchaeus's sudden change of heart. I'll give back fourfold everybody I ripped off. I'll sell things and give it to the poor. Like that was going to do anything. Jesus brought salvation to his house, and salvation came to the rich man's house because Jesus came to his house. Furthermore, he came to his house not because Zacchaeus invited him to come, but because Jesus invited himself. Come out of that tree. I'm coming to your house today. When God is pleased, the Son is revealed to you. And all of your plans to make good on all the bad things you did, well, that's a laugh. Verse 6, in the same way, David describes the blessedness. We could call it the blissfulness of the man whom God considers to have rectitude. That is, whom God approves apart from works. How blessed or how blissful, he says, quoting Psalm 31, 1 to 2, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered over. And this is under the cover of the mercy seat 
which again has application, but different than we thought, not to do with penalty. It's more expiation than propitiation. Propitiation seems to indicate that God has to be appeased because he's really, really mad, angry, his wrath. Expiation means that Christ simply took away sins, took them away. I'll give you the title in advance. It's going to be called Christus Medicus, Christ the Doctor. And so David describes this blessedness. How blessed is the man whose sin the Lord in no way takes into account. Paul asks this question. It is pivotal in verse 9. Is this blessedness for the circumcision only? Or is it also for the uncircumcision? Which means literally the foreskin. For it, meaning the scripture, says, he considered Abraham's trustful faith to be rectitude. Or God approved livingness. We could say, period, that's it. He considered Abraham's trustful faith to be rectitude or God approved livingness. But when was this account of divine approval made? In other words, when did Abraham receive this good report? When did he obtain a good report from God? When Abraham was in a state of circumcision, Paul asks, or in a state of uncircumcision, simply while he still retained his foreskin. Paul doesn't wait for the answer on this when he gives it. He gives the Q and the A. The A, the answer is not when he was in a state of circumcision, but when he was in a state of uncircumcision or while he still had a foreskin. In fact, verse 11 says, he received circumcision as a seal of approval of the rectitude of his faithful trust. In other words, God didn't say here, circumcise you and your family so that I can justify you. He says, now this circumcision that I'm commanding you and your household to do is a seal of the fact that I approve of your faithfulness without circumcision, that I've already approved of you and you've already received a good report. It's kind of like God's overall view of Abraham since Ur of the Chaldees, since God first confronted him and appeared to him, really, and spoke to him. And Abraham's had some little side trips that he took. But God doesn't mention that here because God forgets our sins. People won't. Oh, believe me, people won't. And it's probably actually good to avoid people who every time you meet them in a social situation, they remind you of your sins. Better to move on. They're just holding you back. So then... And I'm speaking that in some occasions. So far from circumcision, being that which God approves as rectitude, Abraham's circumcision was the seal of God's approval of Abraham's faithful trust apart from circumcision. So verse 11, in fact, he received circumcision as a seal of approval of the rectitude of his faithful trust in the state of uncircumcision in order to be the father of all the uncircumcised Gentiles whose faithful trust is also recognized as rectitude. Now, God already, he's already done the saving of all humankind. He's now talking about how one should live in this evil age as it comes to a close and as it approaches its final death rattle and the age of Messiah takes over completely with his parousia. How do we live then? That's what he's answering here. He's not saying 
how to be saved. He's not saying how to be justified. He is saying how one should live in this conflicting, clashing juncture of two ages, one going out, one has, has come in but isn't fully consummated. How do we live in that time? Will you live in a faithful, trustful confidence in the gospel, in the hope of Jesus Christ's parousia? And in confidence in his finished work, we walk by means of the Spirit who inspires the faithfulness that works by love. Abram's or Abraham's circumcision was a seal of God's approval of Abraham's faithful trust or his dynamic state of faith, which he already exhibited in a state of uncircumcision. It's called the obedience of faith, and it's what Paul is doing, bringing about by the gospel in Romans 1 5 and in Romans 16 26, bracketing the whole epistle to bring about the faithfulness or the obedience that is faithfulness among all the nations. That's the this-worldly application of the gospel. That's the now application of the gospel. That's what pastors have to do, brief you into this. So no longer can, in the case of Romans, no longer can those who are circumcised exclude from fellowship those who are uncircumcised, their Gentile or pagan Christian brethren. No longer can Jewish Christians exclude Gentile saints on the basis of their condition of uncircumcision with the males because what counts for God's approval is their faith, their dynamic participation in Messiah's fidelity by the Spirit who in turn produces the fruit of love, faith that works by love. Nor can dietary laws, which became an issue there, separate the saints because the kingdom of God does not consist of food or drink, but of the rectitude of love. Righteousness is the rectitude which is love, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Compare Romans fourteen seventeen with Galatians 5.22, and you'll get an idea of what the experience of the kingdom of God is, and you'll see that righteousness is equivalent to love. Righteousness, joy, or righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit is the kingdom. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So love and righteousness are interchangeable. That which God approves is the love that he himself pours out in our hearts. And it's a faith that works by love. Romans 4.12, and at the same time, the father of the circumcised. So you Gentile uncircumcised don't have the right to disfellowship your circumcised brothers and sisters or your circumcised brothers and your Jewish sisters who follow dietary laws, because Abraham is also their patriarch. And God has not forsaken his people Israel after the flesh. He is not at all, Romans 11. So both sides got to curb their enthusiasm if it's rooted in their own group biases. So he says, at the same time, the father of the circumcised, not the merely circumcised, he says, I don't mean just merely those who are circumcised, but also those who walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham while still uncircumcised. This is, we're getting close to what Paul calls the rule that the Israel of God walks by, a faith that works by love. In Christ Jesus, circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing. What is something is a faith that works by love. Galatians 5, 6. He repeats it in Galatians 6, 15. Circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing. What is really something is a new creation. Then he says, peace and mercy be upon those who walk according to this new rule. 
the rule of the new creation. And those who walk according to this rule are, in other words, the Israel of God. In the present era, the proleptic Israel of God. Here's the central point of Romans 4. Abraham's faithful trust, evoked by God's promise, which motivated his entire livingness, his, whole, his total way of being and doing, was approved both when he was in a state of uncircumcision and when he was in the state of circumcision. God is actually approving of his own act and action in Abraham. For it was God's effective promise that evoked and activated faithful trust and confident hope in Abraham. And it was God himself, therefore, who sustained that confident hope and trust in Abraham. Neither the presence or the absence of a foreskin determined God's approval. But Abraham's faithful trust in the promise of God, which is akin to, likened to, equated with, really, our faithful trust in the gospel about God's Son. And if we really believe the gospel about God's Son and the universally saving significance of the Son, we have a confident hopefulness of the restoration of all things. We have a confident trust in God that he is going to reconcile everything in the heavens and earth by the blood of Christ's cross, the peace that was made there. So no matter what goes on in the world, no matter what factions rip the fabric of our country apart, ideologically, politically, socially, that's where our confidence lies. God is pleased with it. Neither the presence or the absence of a foreskin, and it's absurd when we think of it, determine God's approval. If God is approving of works done in observance of the law, beginning with circumcision, then it's actually saying that God approves of people who have a defect in their bodies, which he ordained them to do. And he doesn't have favor on people who don't have that defect. Let me put it another way. To trust in the Lord with all of our hearts is a good thing. God approves of it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. That's God-approved livingness. The faith that the gospel evokes in us and the spirit sustains in us is that by which we walk and live. I used to live in a Christian commune when I was in college, or when I quit college, and then went back later, after I realized what an idiot I was. We would have people that would travel by and stop at the commune, and they'd get a meal, and they'd get a bed and some meals, and be able to hang out for a few days. But there was always some character who would say, I live by faith, which means, number one, I don't work. And number two, I'm depending on you guys to give me some money so I can go to the next Christian commune and find more suckers. That's not what living by faith means. It means living in a confident trust and a confident, hopeful trust in God's promise which for us is the restoration of all things. And faith granted to us as a dynamic gift from God, a dynamic gift from God through Jesus Christ is our way of being and thinking, deciding and doing in the dying phase of this evil aeon. So this gives understanding about two statements in the scriptures. They're kind of the converse of one another. Without faith, 
meaning as a dynamic state, it's impossible to please God. So you can pray all day long, do this for me, do this for them, and you're not in a dynamic state of faith. It doesn't, your prayers don't please God. Jesus said if you ask anything believing. See, dynamic state of faith always has to be there. Don't fear, only believe. My relative, my father, my mother, my child is sick. Jesus says, don't fear, only believe. Mark 5.36. Well, then you get really mad because the Lord takes home your parent. And he still says, don't fear, only believe. They're with me now in a way that you couldn't even dream about. And you'll see them again. Don't fear, only believe. There's never a time when you have to fear and not believe. And perfect love drives out all fear. So this gives understanding about two statements. Without faith, as a dynamic state, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six, And on the converse, everything that is not from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. And the converse of both of these statements taken together is that God approves of faith or faithful, confident trust in him as a kind of livingness, as a way of being and doing while we live our lives in mortal human bodies. God approved heartily, happily. Jesus did the same thing as God when he said, I've never seen faith like this. It's awesome. This woman from Canaan. I haven't seen this kind of faith yet in all of Israel. And you can see the red faces of all his disciples. The centurion, the Roman soldier. I don't need you to come to my house. Just speak the word and my squire, my armor bearer, my servant, he'll be healed. Jesus said, wow. He approved of that man's confidence in the power and the authority of God in Jesus. So the converse of these two statements in Hebrews 11.6 and Romans 14.23 is that God approves of faith or faithful, confident trust, hopeful trust in him as a livingness. God approved livingness is faithfulness, but it's a participated faithfulness with the Son of God. Christ's faithfulness is throughout Romans. It's shot throughout. As Paul said also in Galatians, the life that I now live in the flesh, that sums up pretty much his livingness, I'd say. The life that I now live in the flesh, in this mortal body, in this close of the age. In other words, my livingness in this mortal body during the course of the clash of two ages. He says, I live by the faithfulness, or we could say within the sphere of, or in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me, you see, the faithfulness works by love and gave himself for me. Why did he give himself for me? To be punished for my sins? No. To save me from sin's control of my life and my complicity with that control and to heal my otherwise incurable sickness. What love that is. It's not my father's really angry and he'll punish me instead of you. That means that his justice is retributive at the cross. And it isn't. It isn't. It isn't. It isn't. It isn't. Now that hits closer to the heart of tradition than the universal salvation hits. It hits closer. It hits harder. You won't believe it until you see it. It's a faithfulness that works by love in Galatians 5, 6. And again, it is the rule in which we walk. It's a dynamic state. 
It's a rule in which we walk as the first fruits of the new creation. Now I'm referencing something that Pastor Brown spoke about Sunday, which I heard Monday. First fruits, James 1.18 of the new creation, which is the same as saying the proleptic Israel of God as those who only boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in Galatians 6.14. Now quickly, let's just do some, give you some tracks to run on here. We're laying track so the train can run on it. Verse 13, so then, now he uses the word gar here. For a lot of people don't want to translate that gar means for or for you see G A R. But there's about 115 or more. There's about 140 of these in Romans. And what it does, it's an inferential thing. And it says, well, since that's true, then this or inferred from that is this. So if he uses 144 fours or inferential things it means he's tying an argument together throughout the whole epistle so then he says the promise to Abraham or to his seed he makes a big deal of that seed being Christ the singular seed in Galatians 316 the word is sperma sperma sperm seed so then the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would inherit the universe Cosmos here means the universe was not through the law, but through the rectitude of faithfulness. Now we're back to Christ's faithfulness of which Abraham's faithfulness was an early mimesis, an early precocious kind of manifestation of the fidelity of Jesus Christ. Because what's being dealt with here is not faith in Christ, but faith in God, in God's promise. And Jesus' faithfulness was to God. Abraham's faithfulness was to God. So it was not Abraham's faithfulness that assured that the seed would inherit the universe. It was Christ's faithfulness. So let me read it again. So then, Gar, the promise to Abraham or to his seed, Christ, that he would inherit the universe... Who? The seed, Christ, was not through the law, but through the rectitude or the righteousness of faithfulness, which means, again, Christ's faithfulness, of which Abraham's life was just an early reflection or an early mimesis, an early manifestation, an early participation in Christ's faithfulness. So it was not Abraham's faithfulness that assured that the seed would inherit the universe, but Christ's faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness, first mentioned in Romans 1.17 in Paul's adaptation of Habakkuk 2.4, is the resounding theme throughout Romans. Look at 4.14, a hint of things to come. For if those who observe the law, again for, gar, if those who observe the law are the heirs, then the faithfulness is empty. What faithfulness? Christ's faithfulness. If we are justified by the works of the law, Galatians 2.21, then Christ died for nothing. Christ's faithfulness to death doesn't mean anything. So if those who observe the law are the heirs or the inheritors, the beneficiaries, then the faithfulness is empty, which means Christ's death is in vain and the promise is made ineffective. So those who are thinking that by the works of the law and the teacher who's teaching by the observation of the works of the law, you receive this promise, they're actually rendering ineffective the promise and rendering null and void the faithfulness that God approves. So in reality, Christ's faithfulness is what effectively justifies and rectifies And the promise remains effective in evoking faithfulness that is then sustained by the Holy Spirit who is called the Holy Spirit of promise in Ephesians 1.13 by which the saints are sealed. So again, the teacher's false gospel would undo Christ's faithfulness and render the death of Christ and his resurrection for that matter to be in vain. That's why Paul said if 
You're going to follow this and be circumcised. Christ will profit you nothing, says Paul to the Galatians. He'll be of no profit to you, no benefit. You have fallen from grace. Now look at this, another thing coming. This is going to really feed into a lot of roots that are tapped into this source here. Christ would become of no real value to them if this promise is realized through their adherence to the law. And you know what Jesus Christ becomes to them? A sidelined religious figure. Just like he is in much of Christendom today. Look at verse 15. This is something to chew on. For the law produces wrath. The law produces wrath, anger. So my, whose wrath? God's? No, man's wrath. The law produces anger. Wrath. Whose wrath? God's? No, man's wrath. Who was mad because he was a proponent of the law and righteousness of the law? Who was mad? Saul of Tarsus was mad. Was God mad? No. The law doesn't work God's wrath. It works man's wrath. Man's the one who needs to repent from his idea that God is retributive. The repentance that God actually gives us is a repentance away from thinking that Christ's death is a penal substitutionary death because God is vindictive and revengeful and angry. The law, all right, I know we're going to go a little over, but there's no church tomorrow. So look at Acts 21. I'll show you what I mean. Here's a case in point. Exhibit A. I'm playing the part of an attorney tonight. I would never make it as an attorney. I couldn't be a prosecutor because I'd feel sorry for the guy or the woman that I'm prosecuting. And I actually got called to jury duty once, and the, the DA in Pittsburgh says, what do you do? And I said, I'm a minister. And he said, we don't want you on the jury. And it, I said, why not? And he said, because you're, you, you forgive. You're just going to forgive. Uh, okay. I wanted to go home anyways. So. Look at Acts 21. Paul is in Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, his brothers in the faith there say, you see how many hundreds of thousands of people there are that are believers, but they're zealous for the law still, Paul? That's earlier on. He goes for the seven-day feast, and he says in verse 27, as the seven days were about to end, the Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple complex and stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, a pagan, in the city with him. They didn't see Paul in the temple with him. They just saw him in the city with him and assumed that he took him into the temple. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple complex. The whole city was stirred up and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple complex, and at once the gates were shut. As they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. What wrath is this talking about the anger of the people, the wrath stirred up by the law, by the zealousness of the law, and they assumed that Paul's gospel was ruining the law, so the law worked wrath, men's wrath, not God's wrath. This does not mean Moses' law as such, but the law that's co-opted by the invasive apocalyptic power of sin. So this is where James and Paul agree. James was certainly right to say the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness 
that God requires or the rectitude that God requires in James 1.20. Paul would answer, observance of the law that produces wrath does not produce or result in a God-approved livingness. That's why at the end of Galatians, he says in 5.26, don't stop provoking one another to anger. Because if you say, I'm fulfilling the law and you're not, you're going to make people angry. You're going to be angry at people who aren't fulfilling the law. And they're going to be angry at you because you say you are and they're not. And the law produces anger. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. These are just hints of things to come. We'll close now. Father, we thank you that where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no observance of the law with the expectation of payment, then there's no wrath, envy, anger. Father, we pray that you will set us straight, rectify us, our thinking. Grant us a repentance For we have seen you, some of us at least, we have seen you as a punitive and retributive God. And therefore we have viewed the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ as an appeasement of your wrath rather than as a means of reconciliation, restoration, and healing. The price is still as steep and deep The death was still as horrific, but it was the necessary death to reconcile, not to appease the wrath of an angry God. Set us straight on this, Father, as an assembly. It's the most important prayer I've prayed to date.